the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Welcome to the podcast edition of Maximum Growth Live, the number one program for lawyers who want to grow their practices. Each week, our hosts, Seth Price and Jay Ruain, tackle the fundamental questions about how to grow the profit and profitability of your law firm. To watch the program live, submit your questions and hear the latest episode. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Facebook for our live show. Maximum Growth Live is a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Hello, hello, and welcome to another edition of Maximum Growth Live. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Ruane, CEO of FirmFlex, your social media marketing agency for lawyers, as well as managing partner of Ruane Attorneys, a civil rights and criminal defense firm here in Connecticut. With me, as always, my friend, my compadre, my amigo, Seth Price. Seth is the founding partner, uh, or one of the two founding partners of Price Benowitz, your DC, Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina criminal defense, PI, and family law firms, as well as the uh, founder of Blue Shark Digital, a SEO for law firms and assorted other industries. Seth, how are you doing down there in uh, D.C.? What's going on? I'm doing great. You know, we, we talk about networking and doing stuff, and a guy cold called me, it turned out, great guy with a gazillion friends in common. It was just one of those energizing coffees where you're like, I got to be doing this more often. Yeah, the idea of that uh just having to go to coffee with people i don't drink coffee so it's my way of avoiding having to do coffee and, and you know what and this and this guy didn't either he i ordered him a hot chocolate so you yeah. you know and, and you know what and i will i will i will say i call bs i don't care if you don't drink coffee it was like we had an, we had a guy we brought in as a senior guy to build a book of business and we said we're going to pay for your lunches for a quarter take everybody else you can out for lunch and the, the lunches stopped and we said why he's like well i was getting fat i'm like you can't make this stuff up. So well, I don't care see, if you don't drink coffee, go have a nice tea. That's a, that's a good uh, that's a good segue for what we're going to be doing on in a little while. Uh, sort of a, a, a point counterpoint type of thing because um, we agree on a lot of things, but there's a lot more that we disagree on. And uh, I've sort of been keeping track of some of the stuff that's come up over the last couple of months, and I want to run down with you some of those and sort of get your thoughts on them, my thoughts on them, and let our audience sort of 
see uh, and hear how we uh, process uh, what's the right move to make. Because when you're growing your business, when you're growing your law firm, there really isn't uh, there really isn't a right way. There's a uh, a decision that you have to make as an owner. Um, and that's something that you have to sort of think through all the permutations of. But before we get to that, I want to talk to you a little bit about some things that have happened recently in the news uh, and among our greater community, because I think there's stuff that we should talk about for, uh, our, for our audience. And one of the things that you picked up, uh, you got an email about and immediately pinged me. Uh, I saw it and immediately thought of the show uh, is the announcement that uh, MailChimp, which is a uh, an email, and it does more than email now, the social advertising and all that stuff, uh, platform uh, has been bought by Intuit, the people who have uh, Quicken, QuickBooks, and, uh, and Mint for personal finance. Uh, and it's really sort of interesting where that's going to take you. Um, when you saw that, what did you think? No, look, it's it's uh, the SaaS-based uh, amalgamation of companies. Uh, we've seen certain instances where you get great new features, um, and that's awesome. And I'm curious to see right now we have Salesforce and seeing whether Salesforce really takes advantage of a Slack integration to date. They hadn't uh, with that merger. And we can see stuff like Avo that when it got acquired, um, you know, we, we found it much less useful um, for our purposes. And it was really, you know, bastardized into a lead gen company. So, uh, you know, hopefully uh, there are more bells and whistles. Uh, what I have seen historically is that they will monetize it more and that as it becomes uh, slicker, it will be more expensive, which as you build your email list, it's not nothing. You know, it, oh, no, it gets to hundreds of dollars a month to keep a substantial email list. Part of me has always wanted to take the time and basically just, you know, upload and download the emails so that you're not paying $400 a month for a freaking email service that you use, at, you know, sometimes as little as once a quarter. So uh, no easy answers, uh, but, ex you know, excited, cautiously optimistic, but know that it'll cost more. Well, it's definitely going to cost more. You know, it's interesting. I've been using MailChimp really since I started doing my stuff. And MailChimp powers my drip campaigns for my intake team. It powers our monthly newsletter. And, and we've got a newsletter audience of about 12,000 now between the 5,000 or so uh, clients that we've had. And we actually send a separate distinct newsletter, email newsletter to the people who have not hired us. So, I mean, my, my, um, my mailing list uh, between all of the different permutations that I've put together over the years and the lawyers that I've met and that type of thing. I mean, we're talking, you know, 40, 50,000 and it is hundreds, but uh, you know, we're getting a lot of use out of it. It's going to be interesting though, since you've got the really QuickBooks is the small business sort of accounting platform that so many small businesses, small law firms use to run their books. Uh, and you've got MailChimp there. I'm curious if they're going to say, hey, look, your business is only spending, you know, 8% on marketing. Others in your industry are spending 10. Why don't you use our MailChimp product to monetize the people that is it that because if you've got their email and you're emailing them uh, an invoice, it's going to be very easy for you to bring that over into MailChimp and send them a newsletter. So I think there's some opportunity there. At least I hope there's opportunity there. Yeah, but I, I'm more cynical. I think it's I think it's just a money thing and the same audience so that your sales team can cross sell and they even do SaaS based. So it's not even sales team. It's, you know, they can target these people. You know, it's yeah. you always talk about this. I'm going to have a ticket practice so I can upsell PI or other criminal cases. Um, you know, I think they're looking at this is 
they they are going to be able to cross market to these two different small business communities. Uh, it seems like an, it seems like they, they should be able to take one and one and make three. Uh, but uh, generally, uh, you know, they will also somebody's got to pay. It's sort of like when you see a major league player sign, somebody's got to pay for that, and you see seats go up the next season. Yeah, they definitely do. They definitely do. I mean, it's expensive to go to a ball game now. Any any type of ball game, it's 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 ridiculously expensive. Um, but that's what it is. Okay, another question, uh, another issue that came up recently, and it was all all, all over the forums this week. Um, uh, a lawyer we know out in Colorado actually was uh, emailed by a competitor saying, "How how are you getting all of these reviews? You can't be getting these reviews ethically, and I don't want to have to report you, but I will if you keep getting. Basically, if you keep beating me up and taking the business, uh, you're gonna. Um, I'm gonna have to report you." Uh, and I and I I don't want to uh, put her put the person on 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 blast, but um, it's interesting because as you start to take a market share from existing dinosaurs want to call them um there is a natural sort of well if you're beating me you must be doing something wrong because nobody's beaten me with the way that i do business uh and i think younger lawyers coming up are trying new things building their rep uh and, and i think there's uh you know these older lawyers I, I, i'm not trying to um a be ageist here but there's a lot of older lawyers who um, their business is going away uh, for a million reasons, and they're looking for an easy and convenient scapegoat. So they're blaming the young lawyer for, uh, you know, just doing the type of thing that you need to build your business, and that's generate uh, Google reviews. Don't you think? Well, look, I, I responded to uh, this lawyer online, and look at it, you know, in a couple of different ways. A, I remember and can empathize because I saw this as we started to build our firm and market that the dinosaurs came after us. We actually made a misstep at one point. And our, one of our marketing contractors did something they shouldn't have done. It was wrong. And you would have thought the sky was falling. We, we fixed it in two seconds once we heard about it. But it was one of those deals where you have a target on your back as you start doing things differently. And I think you need to be aware of that. Um, from an ethics point of view, I think there are two things you worry about, right? One is the bar ethics rules, which it doesn't sound like anything here is close to the line. And the second, you know, it's not, they're not fake reviews. And the second is Google. You know, and their definition of what a, you know, a, a user of your services is. And it cuts two ways because you see restaurants or, frankly, law firms that get blasted. If we have a, most of our negative reviews are people that never signed with us, but somebody who was upset we didn't take their case. There was an issue with intake. There was something that, that rubbed them the wrong way um, that was before a lawyer was even involved. And Yelp, which has had a stronger terms of service, has usually said it has to be an actual customer experience. That's kind of vague. So in this case, if somebody has used the lawyer uh, in some form or fashion or can speak to the, 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 the workings of somebody at the firm, you enter a very gray area. This isn't something where people are going out and getting somebody like I see I, I there are people and Google has not taken these down that go to a state fair and say if you want a giveaway or you want to enter a raffle you need to review us and they say that in the freaking review and Google doesn't take it down so this lawyer is rather safe with what's going on but know that like anything else the terms of service say it has to be an actual customer experience and so you know somebody's getting bitter because this person is being creative in how they're doing it um, at the same time, these old school guys are seeing a number that's passing theirs and they are feeling desperate.
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, just from a tactical point of view, one of the things that I do, I mean, I get, I probably get, you know, five to 10 calls a week for people who want to consult about a, a complicated DUI case, either a lawyer or someone who already has a lawyer um, and is maybe con contemplating either a switch or a trial or wants to get a second opinion, that type of thing. And what I've been doing for the last two years is starting off the conversation with, look, I don't know if this is going to turn into you hiring our firm or whatever, but if I give you some advice today, if you if you think that was valuable, at the end of the call, I'm going to send you a link uh, to give Th me a that's, review. Look, that's not even close. No, no, right. look, that's not the issue. The question is when you go well beyond that. And, you know, and so, look, that to me, clearly good. The question, like, and I'm not saying I'm not. Look, I'm not one of these guys that sits there and is going to worry about it. I remember when Avo first did its roadshow. They were like, "You can't do this. You can't do that." Well, watch them. So again, there's risk with everything that you do, and it, it is not like this person's going like way. They're, they're now in sort of an uncharted territory. God bless. I support yeah. it, but it's it's not like you know what you're doing is great business in my mind because it is right. the. But it's the question a, it's is but right. here's my here's my point with that. I can pretty much guarantee you that though those other lawyers that are you know the dinosaurs in that market aren't even doing that, and so they're oh, missing sure golden not. opportunities to to sort of get well, those good reviews. Those um, dinosaurs and, and may, may not be doing those things though, Ned, Jay. Like oh, so. That's true too. Yeah, that's that's true too. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do a little point counterpoint action. There's a lot of things that I think you and I disagree on. Uh, and so what I'd like to do is I want to take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to do sort of like a rapid fire PTI style, um, sort of um, back and forth. Uh, but we're going to try to keep it tight. You know, why you have your position, why I have position, maybe you get a chance to respond. And then we'll move on to the next one. We're going to blow through these. But I think there's a lot of sort of stuff that people can gain from our perspectives uh, having been through this for 20 plus years, uh, if they're just starting out, uh, they might, uh, they might be something. And I just thought of one that I want to, uh, I want to add to the question. So, uh, we'll see where we go. So let's take a quick break set. We'll be right back with more maximum growth live. Have you heard MaxLawCon is back live and in person this fall at the Ameristar Casino Resort and Spa in St. Charles, Missouri. This event is for you if you're searching for the best ways to scale your law firm and you're craving connections with like-minded legal entrepreneurs. MaxLawCon 2021 has an exclusive Guildmember Mastermind Day on Monday, October 11th with the two-day general conference on Tuesday, October 12th and Wednesday, October 13th. These two days will be full of actionable, proven, strategic content from experts that have been in your shoes. To learn more and grab your ticket today, head to maxlawcon.com. And we're back more with Maximum Growth Live. And today, we, Seth and I are going to do a little, a little sparring. Uh, we tend to agree on a lot of things, but I want to get Seth's input on something, and I think he's going to be flat out wrong uh, on some. So let's start off with, with the first question. Right, Seth, um, your first hire, are you going to hire an experienced lawyer or a brand new lawyer? Uh, and knowing you, I think I know where you're going to go with this. And I think we disagree. So what's your perspective? Uh, to me, the ideal sweet spot is three to eight years out. I cannot like again, er, we have had more trouble with people right out of school. Exceptions to every rule. We've had some rock stars, but more often than not, trouble breakage turnover when we get somebody who knows what they're doing substantively we can then bring them into 
our business model and work with them, but the risk and the chance of losing them in those first 12 months, the number of people that turn over generally across the industry in the first 12 months, just too high for my taste. Okay, so here's where I think you're wrong. I think you want to hire somebody right out of law school because if you're hiring somebody three or four years into practice, uh, they have already developed the bad habits that if you have a highly systemized practice and you want them to do things in a certain way, they are going to be basically fighting against the tide to go back to their bad habits. Uh, and I've seen it time and time again. I bring somebody in with a couple of years experience and what do they do? They don't follow the way I want my practice to run. They insist on you know, not sending letters. They want to talk to clients. And then they talk to the clients and there's no record of what was said. And so as a result, you have people with two different ideas of what was said in the meeting. Uh, you know, that's just one thing that springs to mind. Plus, there's going to be a premium that you're going to have to pay for someone with basically barely a little bit more experience. I mean, I think if you were to go somebody with 10 plus experience, maybe that's somebody who you can do. But hiring somebody with right out of law school, you can mold them into the lawyer you want them to be. And since they know nothing, they're not going to bring those bad habits. What's your response? No, I, I get it. Academically, that's the crevath way, right? Everybody comes up, they learn how to write a letter, they learn how to do everything their way. And I get it. And there's their definite benefits. But to me, one of the issues I've always seen, besides I, I, don't, I want somebody to get their malpractice out in the first three years. When I look at, with few exceptions, and we have, you know, 40 lawyers currently. So over the time of the firm, we probably had 80 lawyers total through the door. If I look at the, the turnover for people, majority of our turnovers, and it makes sense. One of the issues I've talked about is that when you hire somebody right out of school, this is part of the problem. You hire them for, let's say as a law clerk at 40, you know, 50,000 past the bar, 55, start wearing 60. Next thing you know, a year later, they may be worth 90 in the market and your lockstep often doesn't catch up quickly enough and you lose people. Or it, there's just the issue of what is the likelihood that they're both going to like the area of law knowing they haven't done it before and get good enough that you can rely upon them. I don't love putting clients with somebody that junior one-on-one. Um, -on -one. And so to me, I want somebody where I know that they've made the mistakes and I have a track record. I can do my due diligence to make sure there's a basic understanding and then can mold them into our firm. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree. Topic number two, and I'm going to go first here. Uh, and this is, do you invest your time and money into developing referrals at first? Or do you go straight into digital marketing and invest a lot of time and money into developing your SEO? And I'm going to say for 90% of the people that are listening to this right now, they are probably spending zero dollars and zero cents on developing their uh, referral marketing practice at all. I have seen so many lawyers over the years basically invest no effort. They're getting referrals sort of haphazardly. But if you actually take some time and some effort and some money and you put that into developing a referral pipeline, you are going to wind up making more money in your in your career than any amount of digital marketing that you can do. So Tell me I'm wrong, Seth Price, Mr. SEO. You're wrong, Jay, Jay Ruane. No, look, I, I love referral. But to me, the, the digital marketing SEO specifically is the gift that keeps on, keeps on giving. I wouldn't have the firm I have today without SEO. We scaled to 40 lawyers, not because of referrals. I love referrals. Just talked earlier about just doing a coffee. So it's there. But when life gets in the way, you've had four major life events through, through the birth of your firm, right? Four kids, four 
of special events in life, sicknesses, you know, birthdays, everything gets in the way. And to me, this is the one thing you go to sleep, it's still working for you. And as you scale, very few people are Jay Ruane. And there's nobody better at referral marketing than Jay, uh, agreed. But there's only one of you. And how many people have really genuinely done a decent job of referral marketing with the referral beside yourself? So to me, I have a couple at 40. I probably can count on less than a hand how many people actually are proficient and usually bring in referral business. But to me, this is what allows me to control control everything. Whereas, well, again, as a solo, you got to start somewhere. But if to expand over time, to me, if you don't have a marketing channel, it's going to hamstring that unless you're a second generation firm. All right. Well, I understand that my main concern for all the people that are listening now is that you can see people investing three, four, five thousand dollars into uh, into SEO regularly, monthly. And that's probably a starting point. I know people spend a lot more. But if you're taking that amount of money and that amount of attention and putting that into referral marketing, you're going to get re- results uh, and you're going to get results, I think, that are going to at least keep pace with the with the digital marketing. And I and I get your point that uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving because it's always working for you. But I definitely think that a lot of people are losing out on the opportunity to invest money and time into their referral marketing. But let's take this. And, and I would say, you know, look, there, there, there's nothing. Look, in the B2B space, absolutely. But in the B2B space, B2C space we both work in, particularly where you are, I think you're a unicorn. To me, I, I, love, like, I don't mind going to BNI meetings, but I just, the odds of actually picking up a client from there, so remote. And while you're an amazing gifter, and that's freaking awesome, that that is not normal. And that for most people in, their, in the B2C space, the ability to get meaningful numbers through referral marketing is a lot harder than it sounds. And don't, you know, just because Jay says, you know, it's sort of like, you know, don't try this at home. I feel like what you've been able to accomplish is remarkable. And I don't want to take anything away from it. But for the average person, the average market with the average B2C practice, it is much, much harder to scale the referral than it is digital. Well, I'll tell you, the people we have listening here are above average viewers and above average listeners. So we'll leave the average people to that Maximum Lawyer podcast and our Maximum Growth Live people that are listening to this uh, live every week. Uh, They're above average and I want them to invest uh, in that referral marketing. Okay, here's another question. Hey, hey, you know what? I just I got you went first. I want to sort of finish this. What I'm going to just finish. No, it's finished. No, 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 but no, no. I'm going to. I want to compliment you, which is. I don't think that, you know what, because we're supposed to only argue, but the truth is they're synergistic. If you get digital and you get the people in house, then you have people to market to from new cases. If you do, if you just start flat footed with only referral, I think that's my point. Should I blog or should I not blog? Uh, my classic answer is, do you like to write? If you like to write and you're in a niche market, God bless. But if you don't love to write and you have other things you can do with your time, to me, the blog is not the first place I'd spend my time and attention. Gotcha. Okay. My perspective is absolutely. You should be adding content to your website every day. The easiest way to do it is by way of a blog. It is very simple to utilize technology to add this content to your website. Every day, if you are a person like me who started my career, heading out to courthouses every day. You take that 15 minute drive, you record yourself talking about the issue 
of the day. You send that out to be uh, transcribed, you copy, you paste, you put that into your uh, thing, and you're getting new, fresh content on your website every day. Yes, it means you're not going to listen to Howard Stern or listen to the radio on your on your commute, but that's okay. You need to utilize these downtimes in our practice when you are driving to be able to create something. And the more content you create, the better you're going to be long term. Even if nothing else that you're going to give your, your potential new clients more lines in the water to find you uh, when they go fishing for, a, for a, a, a key phrase, you're going to be putting that out there. If you are not creating new content daily on your behalf, you are missing out on the greatest opportunity to connect with people. Uh, so that is my perspective on it. You should be creating content daily. Seth, what's your response to that? Well, look, yes, I agree content daily. Yes, I agree, making it a priority, taking away from some things you may love. But I don't, the idea of a blog, unless you're great and digging deep and resonating, and we've had people uh, you know, on our show, like the Connecticut Employment Lawyer blog, amazing example. You go big, God bless. But otherwise, I would rather see targeted content, not blog style, but I'll call evergreen content for all of the towns around you, for all of the different types of charges or cases that you want, that you will do better with evergreen content written regularly than you will with something abstract. We spent years culling away the crappy blogs that were sort of, that were often outsourced admittedly, but that unless you go and do a really great quality and dig into a meaningful area, and again, for areas like yourself, where it's, where you are in a instant gratification world, I've been arrested, to me, location, charge, or type of case is so much more valuable short-term unless you're one of the great ones. Okay. Here's the next question I have for you, and this is a big one, and I think we're going to have some major disagreement on it. Should you add a new niche to your practice, or should you double down on the things that you are already doing? What's your perspective? You know, I have done well by diversifying. Um, I like the idea that, that you can play off each other. I, I am sure that you will give us great reasons that you want to stay um, in siloed. But to me, I believe in multiple silos, not one lawyer doing multiple things. But if you're able to build a business, and I think the issue, the reason why I believe in that is that as areas max out, that once you become number one in your market for something, there's only so much more that you can do. Now, you can expand ge geographically or you can add other areas in order to get to the income levels you want to get to. See, here's where I think you're wrong. Everyone sees the grass is always greener on the other side. And so a criminal defense practice will say, well, I want the money from PI. Or a PI practice will say, I want to add trust in estates for some positive regular cash flow. But here's the truth. Until you have maximized the revenue 100% out of the practice area that you're in and that you know and that you have contacts with, taking time and attention away from that practice area is leaving money on the table. And you can't tell me today that Price Benowitz owns 100% of the private criminal practice in DC, Maryland, Virginia. You just don't. I mean, I don't own it here in Connecticut. But I know that my team and my support staff and my marketing team are all pick focused 
on developing criminal cases, criminal leads, and that type of thing. And as a result, if I say, okay, tomorrow I want to start up a PI practice, now I need staff that can handle that. Now my marketing has got to change because it's a different type of marketing. My intake team has to have a new process. You know, everything changes. And all that does is muddy the waters. And so if you have not maximized every dollar that's out there for your practice area that you're in now, stop chasing shiny objects, double down, focus on the area that you already have uh, are well ahead of everybody else on owning and focus on that and own it. And only then afterwards, should you look at another niche? Seth? Yeah, look, great, great points. Um, and there's some, there, there's some that certainly resonate. Uh, for me, the, there was a diminishing, uh, you know, sort of diminishing returns at some point within a practice. That's not necessarily the case for everybody in all places, but you know, when we became sort of the largest player in in a market for a type of law, at some point there is a diminishing level of return, and that's where I pivoted. I think what I have learned objectively and humbly is that we may have gone too far out as far as diversification and things we've done during COVID has been to sort of, you know, you know, uh, jettison some of the underperforming areas. So it's, I, I agree with that concept. Um, and I think that like most things, the truth is somewhere in the middle, but if you're, if you do have green pastures in front of you, God bless and expand. I felt that for us, we got to a point where we had a diminishing level of return that if I added more resources, I could get better ROI by diversifying. Okay. All right. So here's another question I have for you. Um, who should I hire first, a junior lawyer or a paralegal? I'm a solo right now. I've got a shingle. Maybe I outsource. I have a VA who answers my phones, that type of thing. But I, I am getting to the point now where I need, I need help, right? So do I hire a paralegal or do I hire, hire a junior lawyer to, to do the work? What's your point? Well, look, depending upon practice area and a lot of other factors, to me, the paralegal is, is, a, is a great first hire in that it basically maximizes the lawyer's ability to practice and takes most advantage while keeping the costs modest and allows you to build the systems that you will need to then build and expand later. So for me, it's paralegal first, then lawyer. Okay, for me, it's going to be lawyer than paralegal, and here's why. You know, if you are in the B2C space, like many of our viewers and listeners are, like you, I, you and I are, hiring a junior lawyer immediately allows you to raise your rates, right? Because whatever you were charging now is the rate that you're charging for that junior lawyer, and now you're above them, and you can charge more. So you're going to be making more profit off the same amount of work. And for me, the way we run things here is we actually go with a hybrid level in the middle. And a lot of people opt for the hybrid, which means I'm supervising the case, but I'm not directly involved day to day. So I'm able to get that increased fee uh, for a lot less work. Uh, and that's going to significantly impact my bottom line over the course of the year and then allow me to accelerate the hiring of other people. Plus, when you have a junior lawyer working for you and they are at your at the beginnings of your firm, there's going to be incentive for them to want to grow with your firm as well because they see opportunity. When you have firms like your firm and my firm that have been around for a while, younger lawyers may not necessarily see the opportunity to grow with the firm because the there's sort of entrenched sort of management and ownership and that type of thing. But a junior lawyer, well, you can take advantage of 
uh, sort of their their energy and their desire to grow with something uh, and, and get them hustling around for you uh, and give you, free you, uh, the time that you need to be able to knock it out of the park when it comes to growing your practice. So for me, the hire is going to be a junior lawyer before a paralegal, especially if I have uh, outsourced people answering the phones and that type of thing uh, that are able to help me limp by. I can spend an hour on Friday afternoon opening up all of my files, doing the manual paperwork like that as I count my cash on Friday afternoon. Uh, but I can't be in three courts at the same time. And that's going to significantly impact my bottom line. And just something for the audience that sort of comes full circle from an earlier question, which is if your philosophy is an older lawyer, it makes the paralegal an easier answer as a first hire versus if you're looking at a junior attorney, this is where it becomes much more of a jump ball and that the cost probably for an excellent paralegal versus a junior green lawyer isn't that far apart in a non-major metropolitan area. And so I think that's where it become the, the waters become very muddy. And that decision is one where I don't, I don't see there's necessarily a perfect, clear answer. And a lot of it depends on who walks through the door first and who could solve your problem better. Okay. All right. Here's the next question I have for you. Do you bring your marketing in-house or do you hire out and choose vendors to solve the problems that you have with your marketing? Go. Look, for me, I have seen and feel like I've created a model with Blue Shark because I saw how hard it was to do this in-house. You know, understanding that a great in-house team, like you have candelier ROI, that's awesome. But that the ability to keep that and maintain that over time when you don't understand the sausage making of market where people come, don't know what they're talking about, extract large sums of money, you know, lay an egg, and then you have to be there to clean up the mess is something that we've seen over and over again and was part of what drove me to start a marketing agency because I couldn't see a way to, to basically bring in, train, and keep talent in a meaningful way that was cost effective. When all those factors are put together, that's where I see outsourcing as being a pretty desirous way to go. See, and I think the, the way to do it is in-house. In fact, I built an agency that's built around giving lawyers the tools they need to run it in-house because I don't think you can be, number one, as nimble as you need to be in the current uh, competitive world by having to outsource it. Because with outsourcing it, uh, you are necessarily putting the responsibility on other people for the for basically giving your firm the oxygen it needs to survive. And by saying that, I mean to say, I have an idea, I turn to my people and my marketing people and I say, let's get this done. And four days later, we are on our way to getting things done. If I were to outsource everything, I would have to call somebody, wait for a call back, they would think about it, they would price it out, they would have to figure out how they're going to execute it, especially if they're a vendor that's not local to me. Uh, I mean, we all know there's, you know, there's a juggernaut in the industry uh, that does videos, but those are not inexpensive. It takes months for them to get you in and get you signed up and they got to write the scripts and all that stuff. And last week I said to my uh, multimedia guy here in the office, hey, I want to do 50 videos. Uh, and my content person got the questions ready. Uh, and, we, and we turned this around in, in less than a week. You know, if I were to try to outsource that outside of my office, it would be three months before we even had a time when we were going to film them. Uh, and so, I, you know, getting it done is more important than getting it perfect, in my opinion. 
uh, agreed, but to a certain extent, you're a unicorn and you love it and you and you focus on it. Most of our audience, that's not the case. They may like it, but they're not Jay Ruane. And, I, you know, to me, I think part of the advantage of a great outsourced group is that it protects you from you. The number of wild goose chases and great ideas that you've had that distract you versus saying, hey, if we do SEO right, and we build content and build links and we have somebody we've paid the money and they're not going to go on. They're going to keep experimenting for new and better ways to do it, but they're going to execute on fundamentals and make sure that we get ROI. They into a certain extent can protect you from you picking up the phone. We had a, a client of Blue Shark years ago who like picked up the phone and, and, and bought a TV package with like a retired Mexican wrestler. You can't make this stuff up. The amount of shiny objects out there is dramatic. And then if you have an, a, a marketing plan that is being executed by somebody where you get where you're in partnership, this isn't set it and forget it. This isn't that you don't need a marketing person in-house, but if the heavy lifting is being done by somebody where you don't have to worry about turnover and you don't have to worry about chasing some shiny object, to me, that's pretty valuable. You know, it brings me to uh, a point, and I'll, and I'll give props to Joey Vital for bringing this up uh, months ago or even last year maybe, that there's two ways to, to deal with a problem. The first thing is to understand it and choose to invest in somebody to solve the problem for you, and then they're simply throwing money at a problem. And if all you're doing is throwing money at a problem, but you don't understand the problem, you don't understand how to fix the problem, you're going to be in a, in a situation where throwing money at a problem is just going to eat up more and more of your of your net revenue, uh, and you could wind up really screwing yourself. So make sure that if you if you're doing something that you're you're not just throwing money at a problem, you understand what you're doing, and you're making a, a, an informed investment in doing that. Okay, so here's the question I have for you. Should we buy an office or should we rent an office? Look, I come from an urban environment. I wish I could buy, but downtown, the ability to get it and what it locks you into. You know, I started in a townhouse and had I stayed in that townhouse, I wouldn't have the practice I have today. Not have a piece of real estate that's appreciated. That's not nothing. Uh, and especially if you hit the right market, right timing. And I have friends who have very nice PI practices where the, the, the founders bought something years ago and it's a great, great asset. It's good for tax purposes, all of that. But if you are sitting there figuring out what you want to do and how you want to grow, unless you want to turn into a real estate agent and sublet and make yourself and buy enough space to grow into, it's, you know, my mentors have always said, rent what you want for the business that makes money don't bootstrap the business because you have the real estate. Well, and, I, and I'm going to say that after years and years and years of being a renter, I've, I've making some moves recently to actually just buy the space and own it. And I'm buying the space for a couple of reasons. Number one, it allows me personally to have a secondary income stream. The office can pay me rent. Uh, so I'm accruing an, a, a, an, a something that's going to have uh, value down the line that I can I can buy, I can rent it out again, I can give it to my kids, I can do whatever. Uh, it's also guaranteeing me uh, an opportunity to know what my spaces are uh, and not be in a situation where I wanna grow and yet I don't have space and I'm locked into a five-year lease. Uh, you know, I can always, if I need more space, look to buy something else and then sell the space that I have. Uh, so um, there's a ton of benefits. But, but, but uh, so Jay, what, what if I taken your advice a couple of years ago, bought a place, COVID comes, half the staff or more is going to be working remotely. Well, you don't need that footprint and it's not really subletable. Well, and well, that's the thing. you got to be very cautious about when you are going to buy uh, and what you're going to buy. I don't want you to go out and buy yourself, 
you know, a, a 4,000 square foot uh, building uh, if you are a solo uh, and just say, I'm going to get grow to the point where I fill this place. Because if you do that, uh, and you're just growing to fill the space that you have. You may not be growing uh, rationally, economically, or financially prudent. Uh, and so, but if you if you are small, I mean, some of my offices that I've bought recently are you know 1,600 square feet. Uh, one's a thousand square feet. I mean, we're not talking huge spaces, but they're strategically located in different parts of the space state. Uh, and I'm able to secure my GMB. I own it forever, uh, and and I have an asset that's appreciating in value. Okay, so great, but let me ask you a question. Assume for a second, despite with all the economics figured out, you can get a better location with slightly better space renting versus an inferior location. You know, do you are you willing to give something up to buy it and taking making your clients drive further, et cetera, or your employees? You know, what's the give and tug? Are you willing to sacrifice to buy? Because look, there's huge advantage to owning. But there's often it's very hard, given the current real estate market, to just walk in and get ideal real estate for a similar cash flow from renting. So I say yes. And I say yes, because now, post COVID, you're more likely to meet with clients on Zoom. So it doesn't have to be the most convenient spot uh, in downtown if that's what you're looking for. And I think, quite frankly, if you're renting downtown, you're going to be fighting with a lot of people. Uh, in that three pack uh, for SEO, whereas if you're in the suburbs, you're going to have a lot fewer people that you're competing with, uh, you know, to, to, to have that established digital presence uh, to use some of your own SEO tactics around you. More offices is better. But if I can own those small offices, uh, you know, there's always going to be a need in a small community uh, for one a one professional office building or one professional office condo or however you can do it uh, that you could rent out to a chiropractor down the line or a dentist or or something along those lines or a hairdresser uh, that right now could be your law oh. office. You know, I'm not talking so, so about- I, I smile because, look, I, I love the dream, but I've lived it. I've invested in real estate. Hairdressers, to me, can be the most because think about it. You're getting rent from somebody who's then renting, quote unquote, booths for multiple people. It's like literally a pyramid scheme of a business model. When it works, it's freaking awesome. But when, when people stock going to the hairdresser as they did during COVID and you don't have any rent coming in, you're now in the real estate business. So, like, God bless. Love it. Wish I did it. But know that it is not a free lunch and that over time you are you now have another business on top of your law firm that you're now running. Absolutely. Okay. Last question for you, my man. You are able to hire somebody, and here are your options. Are you hiring Jim Hacking or are you hiring Tyson Mutrix to join your firm? Despite the socks. And the butchering of bagels, I'm going with Jim Hacking. Uh, I love the systems he's set up. I love the, 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 the fact that he's created an international brand and market for himself and combined video with SEO, with local referrals. I think he's, he's the, the real deal. So I'm going Tyson, and here's why I'm going Tyson. Two reasons. Number one, I think with Jim, while there is money in immigration, individually, you're going to max out on a per head basis. And the only way to generate more revenue is to scale with Tyson. The right PI case that's coming in uh, can can ring the bell and generate a lot more revenue. Number one and number two, he has a, a fascination with 
uh, optimizing and automating things. And I think every practice can benefit from trying to automate more. I think his philosophy from what I've gotten to know, listening to him on the podcast over the years has been uh, has been automate first uh, rather than hire first. And I think that that's what every law firm should be thinking about in this day and age is how can I have something else do the work for me so that I don't have to do it. Uh, so that's my perspective. Why wouldn't you hire Tyson? Well, I'm, I'm going to say with, with Jim, I think what he's created where he has allowed himself to become a brand. We talk about this a lot. And I think a lot of this is nonsense. You need to brand your business. And I think that for most people, individual local people, that's virtually impossible. What he's been able to do internationally, when his kids end up picking up this practice where hacking is a household name, the way Murthy is, that you're going to end up with something bigger than himself with residual income in a way where he's not hustling every day. It's not based on his personal Rolodex, but it's based on an international brand. Well, he definitely has that without a doubt. I mean, he's got a brand to be walking through airports and people, you know, coming up to him and saying, you're the immigration lawyer. That that just is mind boggling. Uh, it's like he's a celebrity. You know, he's fractionally fame in that community. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny. You know, we talked about it earlier in an episode months, years ago about how you can have, you know, fame like Michael Jordan has fame. But then there are, you know, local basketball coaches who have fractional fame. Uh, and, and he certainly does. Okay, folks, so what we're going to do is we're going to take another quick break. When we get back, we're going to wrap up this show, uh, this edition of Max Growth Live. Stay tuned for our final thoughts. We'll be right back. The lawyers who will succeed in the next decade are the ones who are focusing on building their brands where people meet. And there is no place better to build your brand than on social media. With the FirmFlex DIY social media plan, hundreds of lawyers like you are using social media to build their brand and become the one lawyer in their community that people know, like, and trust. By spending even just five minutes a day on social media marketing, you can engage with hundreds or thousands of people in your local community who will need your services. By cultivating a network of followers, you build a book of business that you can market to the next decade and beyond. If you are looking for a solution to help you jumpstart your social media marketing, look no further than the DIY plan at GetFirmFlex.com. The DIY was created by a small firm lawyer for people just like you, helping you connect with local people online and build your brand and engage people in the topics they want to talk about, all for under $100 a month. To find out more, visit GetFirmFlex.com. In this world today, if you want to grow your business, you want to grow your firm, you want to take on more cases and make a bigger impact, you have to have a digital blueprint. Statistically, throughout the time that we've been working with Blue Shark Digital, our law firm, the Atlanta Divorce Law Group, grew over 1,400%. Seth and his team have years of experience in this area. Blue Shark is truly a part of the firm, so I don't consider Blue Shark any different than the employees in my office. All right, so we're done with our wonderful uh, he said, he said debate sort of episode, Seth. Uh, and I got to tell you, you know, uh, a, a lot of talk. And I know I'm a little bit more ingrained in my thoughts after talking this through with you. Uh, I appreciate and value your perspective. Uh, but it just led me to believe that I won every single one of those debates. What are your thoughts? Like, I love it. And that's why I value our friendship, because it's, you see it from such different perspectives. And as you see, like oh, I always say in our business, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. 
uh, and that as people go with the absolutes, that's why I hate the political shows, because the truth is it doesn't make for good TV. But with each of these, there's nuances and that's the nuances that will get you to the right answer. So while I know that I was right about everything that I, I, I stood for, I, I, I know that when you, you actually are sitting there to make a business decision, while you may have a perspective you're coming from where I don't love answer, hiring the junior people, there are times when I want to do that, and I'm guessing there are times when a first year is not going to solve your problem and you have to get that, that more experienced hire. Um, so you know, I, I love the different perspectives, but uh, value and cherish the fact that those are there and that we can help each other build and grow towards uh, bigger and uh, stronger firms. Absolutely, Seth. Okay, folks, so that's going to end it for this week's Maximum Growth Live. As always, as always, you can catch us wherever you download your podcast if you want to take this on the go. Of course, we are syndicated on the Maximum Lawyer podcast, or you can find our Max Growth Live podcast edition available wherever you get your podcast. As always, you can catch Seth every week on his SEO Insider, where he interviews the movers and shakers in digital marketing and really sort of breaks it down for us so that we can understand digital marketing a lot better uh, than, uh, than, than most lawyers do. And I think that's something uh, as a skill is something because, like I said uh, earlier in the show, when you know it, you're not just throwing money at a problem. You can make informed decisions. And taking the lessons that you learn from Seth's SEO Insider is a phenomenal way to really sort of grow your practice. As always, you know me and my love of systems. If you'd like to join my Systemizing Your Law Firm for Growth Facebook page, please do so. We're up to almost 500 members exchanging ideas on systems every day. I post new ones uh, multiple times during the week, and I'm happy to have you as part of the group and of course you can catch us always here live on facebook every thursday 3 p.m eastern noon pacific so that you can talk to us and we can talk to you about all the wonderful things you can do to grow your firm seth any parting words no just uh, have a great rest of the week and we will see you next week we'll see you next week folks bye for now Thank you for listening to Maximum Growth Live. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast for the latest episodes and tune in live on Facebook every Thursday for our live show. For more information, visit Maximum Growth Live on Facebook or MaximumLawyer.com and be sure to share us with your friends.